0: to be here. Thank you for this this invitation and this opportunity. Um, The question that I'd like to talk about is whether Buddhism can help us understand and respond to the ecological crisis, which I think is, I think, maybe an important question for all of us. Before I try to answer that, please notice that I didn't say climate change or climate emergency because as I think many of us are aware, um, urgent though it is, the climate emergency is really just the tip of a much larger ecological iceberg, which includes things like the sixth great extinction event, the fact that so many plant and animal species are disappearing, some people are now saying we should really call it the first great extermination event, because it ain't just happening, we are doing it. But so many other issues too, so many toxins in the water, in the earth, in the, in the air, in our bodies, plastics, which I don't think they really became commercially available much before I was born. And now they're everywhere, even in the deepest trenches in the ocean. Topsoil. In the last hundred years, about half of all the Earth's agricultural topsoil has eroded away. Population. Hard to believe, but uh, I'll reveal my age here. Since I was born, the world's human population is about three and a half times more what it was when I was born. Which, if you think about it, it's just phenomenal, right? It's like, what's going on here? That, That sounds... That sounds like bacteria in a sugar water dish kind of thing. Um, so anyway, we can go on and on. Um, I won't with that, but just to remind ourselves that what we're talking about is something much more than climate change or climate emergency. And I I think it's really important to remember that because it's very conceivable. We could switch quickly enough, conceivably anyway, to more renewable sources of energy, and then somehow the implication is we could just go on with our society, with our economy, with the kind of civilization that we have. But if you add also to what we've just said about the ecological crisis, the kind of economic crisis, the already obscene gap between rich and poor in this country and around the world, and it's still growing, political other, many other social issues. What we really have is a civilization that's lost its way. And again, the question is whether Buddhist teachings can help us understand and respond to that. One answer, I think, is maybe not. No. Uh, the Buddha lived in a very different time and place, right? Iron Age India, 2400 years ago. So And likewise, the Chan Zen tradition developed after him, but still, all of the Asian Buddhist traditions are pre-modern, which means that none of them was really addressing the kinds of issues that we face today. But the other interesting thing about Buddhism is that from the very beginning, it emphasizes so much impermanence and insubstantiality, the, the fact that things are changing all the time. And this applies to Buddhism itself. So we see this in the way that Buddhism spread throughout Asia. Every time it went to a new culture, it didn't just impose itself. It interacted with the local culture. And, of course, our own tradition is one of the great examples of that. When Mahayana Buddhism came to China, it met Chinese culture, especially Taoism. And it's really the interaction of those two that created Chan, which we call Zen in Japan. And now maybe Buddhism, too, faces its greatest challenge ever. So it's not just that humanity seems to face its greatest challenge ever in terms of the kind of situation we find ourselves in today, but for Buddhism, too, it really finds itself challenged by such a completely different kind of society, secular, high-tech, global. And how, ro- how ironic it seems to me Just as we've achieved a global civilization, it seems to be self-destructing. What's going on here? Can Buddhism help us with that? And what does it imply about how we understand Buddhism? How must Buddhism, how much must our practices change in response to that challenge? So although Buddhism doesn't specifically address the kind of situation we find ourselves in today, I think there's a lot of implications within Buddhist teachings. And uh, depending on the talk, there's different ones that I like to focus on. But I think for this evening, the one I'd like to pick out is maybe the single most important thing that I think the Buddhist tradition has to offer us today. And it's something you're all familiar with the bodhisattva path. But I think we need to understand it in a, in a special kind of way. Uh, so maybe I call it the new bodhisattva path. For one thing, the bodhisattva path doesn't really tell us what to do. Again, this refers back to the fact that our situation is pretty unique. Um, we still have to decide for ourselves what's the best way to respond. Like in, in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, you know we have a number of different people, a number of different groups doing different things. people helping with individual ecological footprint. One friend was helping my wife and I, you know, solar panels and that kind of thing. Um, another good friend in Boulder, a longtime member of Zen Peacemakers, uh, is a retired banker and he has a very special background and a very special skill. He, he knows how to talk to Republican members of Congress. So he goes to Washington a lot and lobbies for a citizen's climate lobby for a carbon tax. And I think he's probably quite good at that. Uh, some of the others of us, well, one of the things we've done, some of us are, are members of Extinction Rebellion. I think most of you here are familiar with that organization um, and we've done a number of different things. We we closed down a boulevard in Denver last April and lots more activities are planned. It seems to me there's been a real shift in consciousness just in the past year, you know. I don't know how much of it is the IPCC report, which is, as usual, pretty conservative, but uh, I I just think more and more people are aware of how bad the situation is. And we're also aware that government just isn't going to do it. At least not unless we find ways to hold their feet to the fire. Uh, So, in a way, to mix the physical metaphors, our backs are against the wall. And it seems like more and more of us are realizing we have to engage in nonviolent direct action. But again, I don't think the Bodhisattva path tells us there what to do. We have to decide as best we can. But the Bodhisattva path has a great deal to tell us about how to do it. And that's what's really exciting. I think it has some really special things to, to offer us there, which is what I'm going to focus on in a moment. I call it the new Bodhisattva path because one of the important things that's changed uh, since the Buddha and, and since Asia, too. If you look at the way that the Bodhisattva path has been conceptualized and followed, it, it's usually been understood more on the individual level, like individuals helping others. And in particular, it's always been believed that the highest, of course, would be helping other people wake up. The Buddha didn't talk about evil. But he did talk about what are sometimes called the three roots of evil, the three poisons, the three fires, greed, ill-will, delusion. And again, historically, those have been understood individually. And you, you know, we work on them individually ourselves, and we help other people work on them. But I think something that's become clear in the last generation or so is that um, today the three poisons are institutionalized. So greed isn't just an individual problem, we have, it's built into our economic system. In fact, if greed means you never have enough, that's our economic system, right? It's not just that individuals don't have enough, consumers don't have enough, but corporations in particular, never profitable enough, market share never big enough, uh, share price never big enough, and of course, governments too, preoccupied with gnp gdp it's always got to keep growing and growing and growing which makes me wonder why is more always why is more and more always better if it can never be enough likewise we've institutionalized i think uh, ill will certainly american militarism is one example of that but if you think of you know many other versions uh, tr- many other Attitudes towards refugees, immigrants, racism, transphobic behavior, as we've talked about here. And we've institutionalized delusion. Well, it's fascinating to look at our media, just the role of that. It's not just the fake news that we talk about now, but also for a long time, the advertising, which, keeps persuading us that the next thing we buy will make us happy. So when I say new bodhisattva path, I think what it means, and I think what we all intuitively feel, is that it's not just a matter of individuals helping individuals, but it's really we need ways to address the systemic, the structural problems as well. Because even in Buddhist terms, the greed, ill will, and delusion have become institutionalized, which is to say they've taken on a life of their own, apart from the individuals who participate in them. Maybe the most important thing about the bodhisattva path, kind of obvious, but let me just say it again, the bodhisattva has a double practice. They continue to work on their own personal, individual transformation, such as we do in the zendo here, but they know that that's not enough. They know that it's not enough just to sit in our butts, that we also need to use whatever equanimity, whatever emptiness, whatever awakening may occur. We need to be able to bring that into our engagement. So often in the Zen world and the Buddhist world generally, we've thought of practice as that which we're doing on the cushions and to be involved... To be engaged is a distraction from practice. And I think what more and more of us are realizing is we can't think that way anymore, that practice involves just as much our engagement in the world. And if you think about it, that makes sense, too, in that, say, speaking out of my own tradition, my own experience with uh, Sambo Kyodan, um, People practice for a long time, they change, they have experiences, something like Kensho perhaps. But having some kind of moment of insight or opening, that doesn't automatically mean that your deep-rooted tendencies, kind of self-centered, self-preoccupied tendencies, it doesn't mean that those automatically disappear, they're still there. So it's one thing to have a moment of awakening, one thing to see the delusion of separation and, real your, and realize your interconnectedness. But how do we actually integrate that into how we actually live in the world? And you don't just do that by sitting on the cushion. You do it by actually changing your habits, how you live in the world, how you engage with other people, reminding us the fascinating thing that you know, those who benefit most from bodhisattva activity are the bodhisattvas themselves because that's how we integrate whatever we realize, whatever kind of insight happens. That's how we actually integrate it and how we actually live in the world. If the fundamental problem is the sense of separation, like Thich Han Hanh says, um, we are here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. If the fundamental problem is the delusion of separateness, seeing through that isn't sufficient we have to, as I said integrate that into how we actually live my favorite formulation of that is by the uh, Neo-Vedanta in he said when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom when I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love between these two my life turns My life flows. If, as Dogen put it, if we can forget ourselves and realize the separation, realize that there's no inside separate from the outside, well, if in that case, the outside is an outside. Again, the question is, how do we integrate that into how we actually live in the world? I spent a lot of time recently sort of talking to Buddhists about why it's important to become engaged in the world in that way, kind of that kind of argument. But it also works the other way around. It's interesting how valuable this double practice can be also for activists. Yeah? As we know how difficult it is. It's, it's a tough job how, well, how much we tend to burn out get frustrated, angry. Um, I was pleased last April when we had this Extinction Rebellion event in Denver what afterwards some of the people who knew that I was connected with this new Eco Dharma Retreat Center, they asked uh, if I would have a retreat for XR people. And we did in September, the middle of September just a short one, over a weekend, but it was quite powerful. And I think that uh, people really benefited from it. So it works both ways. We Buddhists need to realize the importance of activism. The activism, if somehow they can ground their activism in some kind of practice, some kind of uh, contemplative, you know, it's not about converting them to Buddhism, but if they can simply see the point of the meditation and the contemplation, that can really, really be helpful. Am I correct in thinking that I'm just talking about things you guys already know about already? I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe the language is a little bit different. Yeah. Let me go ahead and uh, let me talk for a little bit more. Uh, you know, n- not terribly long, but then uh, and then kind of open it up because I, I think a discussion is better than a, like a kind of a lecture. I mean, I'm a retired professor. I've I've had enough of lectures, or so you know i don't want to get into that let me just talk about a few attributes of the bodhisattva that i think it's worth reminding ourselves up ending with what i think is the most important one you know for example bodhisattvas you know by by virtue of the buddhist precepts there's obviously concern to be nonviolent right and It also fits in in some other ways, you know. Um, As I said, as I think I said, in Buddhism, the fundamental issue isn't good versus evil. That's kind of Abrahamic, Judeo Christian, right? Um, So it's not about finding the evil people and kind of destroying them. For Buddhism, the real issue is delusion versus wisdom or ignorance versus awakening. And, and the fact that we're all sort of implicated within that s- systemic, a, a kind of s- systemic delusion. So, in other words, it's not about identifying the evil people, as I said, but uh, um, and not about othering, but real. You know, and although sometimes you have to stop people from what they want to do. Nonetheless, but it's not about labeling them and othering them, but but the realization of our common. Buddha nature and, and trying to work on that level. I'm very, I was very impressed by Gandhi, the way that he operated. You know, he never, he never othered the British. I mean, he'd studied and practiced in England. And he really had a lot of respect for them. And he believed that eventually they would have to walk away. And they did. But uh, one of the big issues is that he he, treated, he always treated them respectfully. Another important issue is Buddhist pragmatism. And I guess that stands out for me in contrast to sort of the kinds of ideological struggles that leftists or revolutionaries can fall into. Um, I'm thinking of like the old left in the US, which sort of had no power whatsoever to do anything, so they just kind of exhausted themselves and sort of Trotskyite, Leninist, or whatever, you know internecine feuds. One of the nice things, if you think of the parable of the raft that I suspect most of you are familiar with, the Buddha compared his teachings to a raft to get across the river of life and death. You know, And you don't get to the other side and you look at the raft and say, oh, this is a great raft. I'm going to carry it around my back everywhere you go. The Buddhist teachings are inherently pragmatic. It's like the Buddhist teachings aren't sacred scripture, even if they're sometimes treated that way. You know, you don't put them on an altar. The Buddhist teachings are like a roadmap or a guidebook. They're to help us do something. And this implies a kind of fundamental pragmatism that I think um, is always kind of important to keep in mind a certain kind of flexibility. And that goes along with something else, kind of creativity, uh, upaya kasaya, a skillful means, I was very impressed by a Zen student I met in New York quite a few years ago. He was, I think, connected with Zen Mountain Monastery, young guy. And uh, he was doing some really interesting stuff. He he would go to the offices of somebody running for a state assembly. And he would say, "Uh, I'd like to know your position on accepting uh, corporate donations. Oh, and by the way, I have here a list of like 15,000 people who have signed a petition saying that they won't vote for anyone who accepts corporate donations. And they would all like to know what's your position. Oh, and by the way, you won your last election by only about 10,000 votes or so. So would you let us know? Uh, I thought that was really clever. And, you know, he's got them all line, line. He can just... at at very short notice, just inform them what this particular person is doing. Very clever. So I think all of that's very uh, consistent with Buddhism, right? Not othering, not getting caught up in the good versus evil, being pragmatic, being creative. But let me just finish what I have to say by spending a few minutes focusing what I think is the single most important aspect of the Bodhisattva. one that I think we desperately need today. Bodhisattvas act without attachment to the results of their actions. Which, of course, is very easy to misunderstand. Especially given the way that Buddhism emphasizes from the beginning sort of motivation and tension, you might conclude, oh, all that really matters is the purity of my motivation. It doesn't matter if I actually achieve anything. It's just what's my own uh, in- intention, which I think is a complete misunderstanding of, of what's going on there. Um, it's interesting, by the way, to notice that this it j- isn't just found in Buddhism, but like, for example, if you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the paths in the Bhagavad Gita. They, call, they talk about karma yoga. Again, the emphasis... In karma yoga, your job is the work. It's not the fruits thereof. But I think it's really important for us to understand then what it means to say, to really understand what non-attachment to the result of our actions is. Because otherwise I think we're probably going to not be as effective as we need to be. So let me give you three quick instances of what I think that means. Number one, think about the difference between running a 100-meter dash and a marathon. If you run a 100-meter dash, the only thing that matters is to get to the other end as quickly as possible, right? You don't have time to think about anything else. But obviously, you can't run a marathon that way. It just won't work. You'll just burn yourself out. In fact, if you are too caught up in getting to the goal, that becomes a real problem. Rather, what is needed, you need to be running in a certain direction. Yes, you're going in a certain way. You're not sitting by the side of the road. You are going in a certain direction, but you're not preoccupied with where you're going to get to in the future, you're preoccupied with what you're doing right here, right now. Just this, just this step, just this step. One step at a time. As we say in Japan, tada, that tada, just this. And you find it also in Sanskrit, tathagata. In a way, the Buddha literally is one who thus comes and thus goes. Friends of mine who are marathon runners say that when you run this way, you can get a kind of a runner's high. In fact, I think this is what the Taoists are referring to when they talk about Wei Wu Wei, the action of no action. If you become one with the action, and in order to become one with the action, you can't be preoccupied about what you're trying to get from the action. But if you become one with the action, it's almost like you there's a kind of effortlessness to it. I don't know, probably some of you here are runners. You've had some experience of this? No? Yes? You know. I don't know how long that lasts. You know, maybe 26 miles is kind of long. But, uh, you know, you can. So I think that's one example of kind of acting without attachment to results. It's like one step at a time. You're completely one with what needs to be done right here and now and not sort of so preoccupied with the complications along the way. Yeah. So that's one example. I don't think it's the main example. So let me move to number two. Even if you're a slow runner or walker, I mean, a marathon is only something like, what, 26 miles? So, you know, if you keep at it, you're going to get there. But what if, what if it's What if there's no goal? What if, it, what if there's no end at all? What I'm thinking about is our uh, bodhisattva vows. Do you recite them here, I would assume, maybe every day? Yeah? It's quite striking, you know, the first one, right? It's, I don't know how you say it, living beings, sentient beings. I think originally breathing beings, right, are numberless. I vow to save, or liberate, or help them to wake up. All. And if you think about it, that's really kind of a funny thing to do, isn't it? We vow to do something that cannot be accomplished. What does that mean? Well, it means we're obviously not holding our breath till we get to the end, what what it really means is i think that there's a fundamental reorientation about the meaning of our lives that as long as we have the delusion of separate that there's a me separate from the rest of the world outside then you know inevitably to some extent there's sort of self preoccupation what's in it for me my well-being is separate from other people's well-being and basically what this is saying is turning that around but turning it around in a way that there's no goal, or there's no goal in the sense that there's no end. It's like we do what we can. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes it doesn't. But in a way, it doesn't make any difference. It's like there's no end to it. So maybe you're, you're concerned to make some situation better, gets better, fine. What does it mean? Well. Lots of other situations, lots of other people. You just kind of keep going forever and ever. If there's rebirth, we keep doing it for as many rebirths as as there are. So again, it's this fundamental reorientation so that we're not focusing on a particular goal. It's not attachment to the results. It actually makes no difference. We succeed. That's great, we fail, get up, try again. It's just going on and on and on. I think that's a really important perspective, you know, that that's... And it's so wonderful because it solves this problem a kind of the meaning of our lives. A meaning that connects us with other people and indeed with the rest of the world. Okay. Everything I've said so far is kind of a build-up to what I'm really interested in, which is the third aspect of what it means to act without attachment to the results. Because we better have that attitude today given the kind of situation, especially the ecological situation that we face today. As you probably know, a lot of people think it's already too late, that things are, going to fall apart. In fact, in many parts of the world, less privileged than ours, it it already is. Um, People are not only talking about the collapse of civilization, but some scientists, given the temperature rises that are expected, maybe even the possibility of human extinction. We just don't know looks bad. We don't know how it's going to play out, what's going to lead to what, but it doesn't look good. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know know, whether the the things that we try to do now can actually stop this or make a significant difference. We just don't know. Just don't know. That sound familiar? Just don't know. What am I referring to here? Not knowing is the most intimate. So, so, so. Not knowing is most intimate. Um, Zen peacemakers? <laughs> yeah. Also, um, one of my teachers, Robert Aiken, um, he, he, he put it very well, I think, when he said, um, our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. You know, f- f- there are lots of situations or there are lots of people for whom not knowing, there's something kind of paralyzing about it. But I think it's actually quite the opposite for on our path. That don't know mind is actually kind of an essential part of it. And that when we practice, when we begin to open up let go of ourselves, it's not as though, oh, now I understand everything about how the world... No, it's just the opposite. It's like it's opening up to this incredible mystery where we don't know what's happening, we don't know what's possible, and that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. We don't grasp that mystery. We open up to the mystery which grasps us. I was raised during the Cold War, when we all took for granted the standoff between the U.S. and the Communist Bloc. It's just the way things were, expected nuclear war to happen, to break out at some time. And then it seemed like overnight the Cold War collapsed because the Soviet Bloc did. I don't think anyone saw it coming, not even the CIA. In retrospect, you can always see cause-effect and all that, but again, the kind of mysteriousness there. Or Nelson Mandela? Apartheid? One day he was in Robben Island, the next day he was released, the next day he was, it seemed like he was Prime Minister of South Africa. What's going on? So again, a kind of fundamental mystery there. How do we respond to that mystery? Howard Zinn. There's a tendency to think that what we see in the present moment will continue. We forget how often we've been astonished by the sudden crumbling of institutions, by extraordinary changes in people's thoughts, by unexpected eruptions of rebellion against tyrannies, by the quick collapse of systems of power that seemed invincible. One of my favorite writers, uh, Ursula Le Guin, she received a sort of national book award and she In her speech, she said, you know, we live in capitalism, controls everything. It seems indomitable. It seems irrefutable. But, she said, so once did the divine right of kings. Things can change. So what it comes down to then, in the face of this mystery... I think it brings us to the ultimate meaning of not act- acting without attachment to results. We need, we need to be as strategic as possible. That's not denied. But nonetheless, what it comes down to is our task today is to do the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do makes any difference whatsoever. And let me say that again, because I think that's really the heart of it. Our job, what it means to be a bodhisattva, what we're challenged to do is to do the very best we can, thinking it through, being as strategic as we can, but not knowing whether it will make any difference. We don't know, we can't know if what we do is important. But it's important that we do it. And this isn't about it really has nothing to do with optimism, pessimism, that kind of duality, um, reminding me of my favorite definition of a pessimist, somebody who has had to live with an optimist, you know pointing out the duality, you know, or even better, hope and despair. right? Again, it's a duality. You know we, we read something, something good is happening, we feel kind of hopeful, and then something else we read, things are falling apart more quickly, how easy it is to bounce between hope and despair. And that's not what the Bodhisattva path is about. It's about responding appropriately here and now, as the koan puts it, without knowing whether what we do makes any difference whatsoever. Or you could say it's a different kind of meaning of hope. Václav Havel, the, the... former prime minister of uh, the Czech Republic. Hope isn't the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing regardless of how it turns out. Or Wendell Berry. We don't have the right to ask whether we're going to succeed or not. The only question we have the right to ask is, what's the right thing to do? What does this earth require of us if we want to continue to live on it? In other words, our actions really need to be our our gift to the earth. And like every genuine gift, you know, it's not, you don't give a gift because you're hoping or expecting for something in return. You give it freely. You don't know what's going to happen to the gift. In a way, that's not our concern. We do what the best we can, and then we sort of leave it to that. Any other Lord of the Rings fans here, Tolkien fans? There's a nice, uh, there's a nice little bit. I forget which part it's from. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. In conclusion, I wonder if... Are are, are you folks familiar with the Shambhala prophecy? Uh, Joanna Macy talks about this. Anybody? Yeah. Um, Joanna Macy has a new book coming out. Uh, She's turning, I think you probably, most of you know who she is. She's turning 90 this year. There's a kind of commemorative volume, includes some of her essays. It'll be out early next year. And, uh, you know, she had a Tibetan teacher in Nepal, Tibetan Buddhist teacher in Nepal that uh, she studied with at one time. And he told her this Shambhala prophecy. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. Great barbarian powers have arisen, wasting their wealth in preparations to annihilate one another with weapons of unfathomable death and devastation and technologies that lay waste to our world. And it's just at this point when the future of sentient life hangs by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. But you can't go there. It's not a place. It exists in the hearts and the minds of the Shambhala warriors. And they don't have any uniforms or insignia. No banners. They don't don't even have any home turf. They keep on the move. But they have two weapons that they train in. They train, said her teacher, in the use of two weapons. That's the term he used, weapons. What weapons, I asked? And he held his hands up. One is compassion, he said, and the other is insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. So compassion and wisdom. And the point being that you need both. One is not enough. You need compassion because that's what provides you with the fuel, the mode of force, to get you out there to be where you need to be to do what you need to do. And what it consists of, essentially, is not being afraid of the suffering in your world. And when you're not afraid of the pain in your world, then nothing can stop you. Then you can open to it, step forward, and act. But that weapon by itself isn't enough. It's too hot. It can burn you out. So you need the other. You need the wisdom into the mutual belonging of everything. With that wisdom, you know that it's not a war between good guys and bad guys. But the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. So these are the weapons of the Shambhala warriors. And when she went home and she told her family, her husband and at least one of her sons. She told them about this prophecy. But the son, he looked confused. But mom, didn't he tell you how it was going to end? How it was going to turn out? And I laughed and said, if he had told me how it was going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed any of it. And don't you believe anyone who tells you they know what's in store for us. And that's an essential part of the prophecy. We don't know how it's going to play out. That's why we have to act without attachment to results. Does that make any sense? I think I've talked long enough. Hopefully there's something there worth picking up on and discussing. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.